When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We do begin the readout tonight with the moral case for protecting the right to vote. I mean, it's unconscionable that 46 years after one Democratic president put the moral weight of the office of the presidency behind expanding voting rights, another would have to do it again. But amid Republicans' draconian voter suppression efforts all across the country, President Biden today did just that. Speaking in Philadelphia, an epicenter of Republicans' anti-Democratic efforts in 2020 and to this day, Biden eviscerated the claims of the disgraced former president. No other election has ever been held under such scrutiny and such high standards. The big lie is just that, a big lie. The denial of full and free and fair elections is the most un-American thing that any of us can imagine. The most undemocratic, the most unpatriotic, and sadly, not unprecedented. Time and again, we've weathered threats to the right to vote in free and fair elections. And each time, we found a way to overcome. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. And we're going to challenge it vigorously. Biden mirrored Lyndon Johnson's voting rights speech in 1965, invoking the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome, and assailing what he called the greatest threat to democracy since the Civil War. But Biden didn't offer much in the way of a plan. When President Johnson delivered his speech to a joint session of Congress, he was urging passage of the Voting Rights Act, a law that's now essentially dead. And today, Texas Democrats continued their fight against Republican voter suppression efforts in their state after more than 50 elected Democrats left Texas last night to block the passage of new voter suppression laws. The longest-serving black woman in the Texas legislature, Sinfronia Thompson, outlined exactly what's at stake for her constituents if new federal laws are not enacted, or if the state laws are enacted. When I look at the African American Museum, I thought about the struggle of my people fought in this country to get the right to vote. That's right. And that right is sacred to my constituents that I represent back in Houston, Texas. I'm not going to be a hostage. That my voter, my constituents' right to be stripped from them. We have fought too long and too hard in this country. Around the time those Texas Democrats finished speaking, Texas House Republicans voted to send law enforcement to track them down under warrant of arrest. Texas law enforcement has no jurisdiction in the nation's capital, so that remains a performative exercise. But Republican Governor Greg Abbott has vowed to have them arrested when they return to the state. The Texas Democrats plan to stay in Washington as long as it takes to kill the new voter suppression measures back home and to push for federal voting rights legislation in Congress, meeting with senators today and Vice President Kamala Harris, the administration's lead on voting rights. But neither President Biden nor Vice President Harris addressed the elephant in the room when it comes to federal legislation today, the filibuster. Even as some Texas lawmakers echoed calls for a carve out in the Senate rules to advance federal voting rights legislation. Biden again called on Congress to restore parts of the Voting Rights Act gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013 and again just two weeks ago. Puts the burden back on Congress to restore the Voting Rights Act to its intended strength. 
As soon as Congress passes the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, I will sign it and let the whole world see it. That will be an important moment. Joining me now is Senator Alex Padilla of California and State Representative Chris Turner, chair of the Texas House Democratic Caucus. Uh, I want to start with you, um, Representative Turner. Um, the first, I have to talk to you about this threat to have you all arrested when you return to Texas and supposedly to track you down like the Fugitive Slave Act is still in force now. What do you make of that, those threats? Well, good evening, Joy. Great to be with you. Um, uh, they're, they're empty threats. Uh, as, as you stated, uh, the, the governor, uh, the state of Texas doesn't have, have jurisdiction uh, outside the state of Texas. Uh, but moreover, uh, Governor Abbott uh, is just uh, is just simply empty bluster. Uh, he does not have any authority uh, to come after us. Uh, you know, Governor Abbott has had a problem lately understanding the separation of powers. Uh, he's the executive branch. We're the legislative branch. He, he tried to he has tried to defund the legislative branch by vetoing our, our appropriations. And now he's threatening to arrest lawmakers, neither which he has the constitutional authority to do. The, the Texas House of Representatives does have a rule that allows the speaker and, and, the, and the remaining members there to compel a quorum. That is within their right. Uh, they they authorized warrants. They did not issue warrants. Uh, and so uh, that's but the reality is uh, it's a civil matter. It's not a criminal matter because yeah. our, our members have committed no crime. Fundamentally, uh, what we are doing is working for our constituents and fighting for democracy. That's what we're doing. Well, what you're doing is showing, uh, you know, with all due respect to I know we do have a, a, a D.C. Democrat uh, that works on Capitol Hill uh, on with us, but showing Democrats here in the Capitol how to fight. Um, you met with the vice president today. You were part of the group that met with her. Did you leave that meeting feeling that you have a commitment that Democrats in D.C. will fight as hard as y'all are fighting? You all are taking the risks um, that, you know, I think that the base of the Democratic Party wants to see taken all around the country. Did you leave there feeling that you have a commitment from the White House to do something to make sure voting rights pass federally, including getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah. Well, we had, we had a great meeting with, with Vice President Harris, and she reiterated her support and the president's support uh, for seeing both these laws pass the Congress and get to the president's desk. Uh, that's, that's, of course, not in doubt. Uh, she reiterated yeah, we already her, know her, they support that. It's like, did, what do they say they're going to do? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I really, I'm so, I apologize, but we know they support it. Yeah, you know, Biden gave a great speech today. What did they say they're going to actually do? Well, uh, they, they want to continue working with us and, and amplify our voices and ask us to amplify theirs. We continue to create uh, the pressure and, and the and the public uh, uh, demand for uh, the Senate to be able to pass both these both these laws and get them to the president's desk. And, and, and we briefed the vice president on what we've been doing. We've had a delegation of members uh, working the Senate side today. We had a group of our members meet with Senator Padilla earlier today and, and some other senators. And we're going to continue to do that for the next several days. And, and our, our message is very simple. And we told the vice president this, that we have committed the Democrats of the Texas House to running out the clock in this special session. That'll end August 7th to kill this bill. And we're going to use that time to spread the word about what a crisis this is for our democracy. But we can't do that forever, obviously. We have to go back right. to Texas. Uh, and so we need Congress and the U.S. Senate to, to act now to pass H.R. 1, which is already passed in the House, uh, to also pass the Senate. And we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We need them both. 
Let, let me go to you, Senator Padilla. You're, you're a newer member of the Senate, um, so perhaps the, the sort of intractability of it hasn't you know, kicked in with, with you yet. But, I mean, this is the reality. These, senator, these, um, these representatives from Texas are very brave, and they are showing the meaning of the word fight. But they, they, as he said, they can't do it forever. And there's also a deadline when the August recess is going to kick in for the United States Senate. Look, when I was, uh, you know, I was you know, a, a young, young, young person— um, Congress used its power of compulsion to force my state, Colorado, to lower their speed limit to 55. They sure didn't want to do it, but they said, well, you don't get your highway funds if you don't do it. There's a lot of power of compulsion that the federal government has. I, I think a lot of people that are watching this show do not understand why the powers of compulsion are not being used to force these states back, to push them back, or to get the um, federal le voting legislation passed. There's only one reason why it hasn't been done already, and we'll, we'll say it again. It's the effort, the filibuster. So, yes, put me down in the column of abolishing the filibuster or, or at least a, a, a carve-out, an exemption, whatever you want to call it, for the sake of saving our fundamental democracy. You know, I really do commend the uh, Texas legislators that are here making the case in the nation's capital, not just uh, through the press, but through for policymakers. The last time they were here, it, it made a difference. You know, prior to their first visit, we didn't even have Joe Manchin supporting the, the uh, vote to debate the For the People Act on the floor of the Senate. Their presence here absolutely made an impact. We got to a 50-50 vote, still 10 shy of uh, the 60-vote the threshold required by the filibuster. But maybe their presence here and the examples that they're bringing of these voter suppression laws in Texas can continue to move not just the hearts and minds of the general public, uh, but members of Congress as well. And I got to tell you, as we're trying to uh, influence the public and, and highlight what's happening, it's not just Texas. You saw the sham of an audit in Phoenix. Arizona. Uh, you've seen uh, what's happened in Georgia in recent months and in Alabama and in Iowa. Voter suppression is happening across the country. And that's why, yes, Congress needs to act. But, it, but here's the thing, Senator, is that, you know, you have maybe 10 senators who want to keep the filibuster. They seem to be clinging to that more than they are to democracy. They don't seem to have any urgency. They don't have the urgency you just described. Why would you go along with voting for their infrastructure bill? Manchin really wants that. Why don't some of you senators say, well, you don't get our votes on your precious infrastructure bill that you need for your politics if you don't give up the filibuster? Or why not say, you know, there's got to be something Kristen Sinema wants other than to be on TV and mock, um, you know, uh, the, the, her, her own base. Why don't you say to her, you want my vote on this? You don't get it. You don't get your 50. You don't get your special stuff unless we get what we want. Why? I, I, I don't understand why senators are not using the leverage they have over the recalcitrant 10 or however many of them there are to say you don't get your way unless we get help on voting rights. It's more important than anything else. Right. Look, and uh, I may be new to the Senate, but I ain't new to politics. So don't think conversations along those lines uh, may not be happening as we speak. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is with the presence of these heroes from Texas, uh, it is making a difference. And so last go around, it moved at least one or two. This go around, hopefully it's another two, whether it's on the substance of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is already uh, supported by partisan or HR1, S1, uh, or maybe the 
rules for the filibuster itself. It is making an impact. We need to hear from them more. We need to hear from other states. Congress needs to hear from the American people. And between Joe, President Biden's speech, uh, the, 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 the courage of these Texas legislators, and more of us continuing to speak out and bringing specific examples as to the harm here. You know, one of the, the, the compelling examples that the Texas representatives made is the elimination of drive-through voting. What does that mean for voters with disabilities? And, and don't tell me that in Texas it's okay because they can vote by mail because you know how restricted it is to be able to vote by mail in Texas. So we've got to call out these examples uh, to uh, really exemplify the true voter suppression, Jim Crow modern era that we're talking about here in state after state is all the more reason why we need these reforms to be done in Congress. You know, Representative Turner, I, I don't, does that, is that compelling to you? Because it, it strikes me, I hate to, to say this, but it doesn't feel like people like Manchin and Cinema care about that. That doesn't seem to move them. So if you all are not able to commit, have you had a chance to talk with, Man, with Manchin or Cinema? Have you met with either of them, Representative Turner? So the, the last time I was in Washington about three weeks ago, I, I, I did have an opportunity to meet with, with Senator Manchin, actually right before I last came on your show, I think. And, yeah. and um, af after that meeting, uh, and I won't say it was all because of our meeting, but after that meeting, uh, the, the senator did uh, end up supporting moving forward on uh, S-1, uh, the For the People Act. Uh, and of course, was was blocked by the by the filibuster. But there were 50 Democratic votes for that, which was, I, I think, certainly forward progress. But but now that forward progress is halted again. Uh, so uh, we are going to visit with Senator Manchin again this week. Uh, uh, so some of our members will. Uh, we are hoping to meet with Senator Cinema certainly as well, uh, and other senators. On, on the Hill. And, and just what Senator Padilla was just saying, that's what we want our members while they're here to do, is let us tell you exactly what Republicans in Texas are trying to do. Yeah, banning drive-through voting, banning overnight voting, uh, empowering partisan poll watchers to be able to literally look over someone's shoulder while they're casting a ballot and try to intimidate them. And, and Republicans have used poll watchers for decades in Texas to intimidate primarily African-American and Hispanic voters. Uh, and now they want to give them more powers, be able to do more intimidation. Uh, it's wrong. Uh, it's sick. It's anti-democratic. And that's the message we're trying to spread, how bad this vote suppression legislation is, which is why we need strong federal legislation and we need it now. Uh, absolutely. I, I'm going to give you, uh, you know, one more one more sort of go at this, um, uh, Senator Padilla. What, what do you think ends up? You know, these people, you you'd obviously your fellow Californian is now the vice president of the United States. Um, but you also know these other senators. What is it going to take to get them to give up the filibuster? Yeah, look, I think it's continuing to point out the hypocrisy. Uh, and here's uh, the last thing I'll mention for anybody on either side of the aisle who says we can't move forward on this because it should be done on a bipartisan basis. Look what's happening, not just in Texas, but in state houses across the country. These voter suppression measures that are advancing are only being done on a partisan basis. Republican partisan voter suppression. Congress needs to respond in time is of the essence. Yeah. And they can't keep asking voters of color to vote for them if they won't even fight for the same voters and fight for them to keep their rights. They're just not going to be able to keep making the ask. Maybe that'll move them. You won't be able to get these votes anymore. Why would anyone want to fight for you to keep your power if you won't fight for us to keep our right to vote? It really makes no sense. Um, Senator Alex Padilla and Texas uh, State Representative Chris Turner, please convey to all of your colleagues how grateful the country is for 
for you fighting for our democracy. Thank you very much. All right, up next on the readout, a health official fired for promoting vaccination. A teacher fired for including anti-racism in his lessons. It begs the question, what the hell is going on in Tennessee? Meanwhile, Republicans in Texas put an actual, get this, a bounty on the heads of anyone who helps a woman fulfill her constitutional right to have an abortion. Plus, Rudy Giuliani's election night strategy that even Trump's third-rate staff said was pathetic. A critical look at Rudy's career finds a lot of that kind of bad judgment. The readout continues after this. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. The GQP's anti-vax hysteria has reached a fever pitch in Tennessee, where the Department of Health, if you can even call it that anymore, is halting all adolescent vaccine outreach. Not just for coronavirus, but for all diseases. Think measles, mumps, rubella, whooping cough. This comes after the state fired its top vaccine official over her department's outreach efforts to promote COVID vaccinations among teenagers. Outreach that, mind you, could literally prevent teenagers from dying or passing the virus on to their families or their teachers as the state becomes one of the first to reopen schools amid a surge in the Delta variant. Tennessee, where only 38 percent of the population is vaccinated. The casualties of the Republican death cult culture war just they don't even end there. A high school teacher in Sullivan County, Tennessee, who is tenured, by the way, is facing termination for teaching a poem about white privilege and for assigning this essay by ta Coates which examines how Donald Trump employed whiteness to try and dismantle the legacy of America's first black president, Barack Obama. This is what that teacher, Matthew Hahn, told the school board in March when it accused him of not showing opposing viewpoints. It takes more than 45 minutes to talk about some of these issues, like racism. You can't cover that in one class. And what's the opposite of ra- the opposite of racism is racism. How am I supposed to show an opposing viewpoint to that? I don't consider white privilege an opinion. I consider it a fact, just like the Pythagorean theorem or evolution. Just, just or, because you consider something a fact, don't make it well, a fact. I mean, Ooh, Lord, what we're seeing right now in 2021, and not just in the state that brought us the Scopes trial in an earlier era. Are witch hunts, witch hunts against teachers who teach facts and a statewide initiative to ban public health outreach to teens, leading us to wonder what the hell is going on in Tennessee and frankly, in America. Joining me now to help make sense of this is Tiffany Cross, host of the Cross Connection right here on MSNBC. And Tiffany, I, I told you during the break that I'm losing my ability to explain this yeah. composure. Yeah. Let's go back. I'm going to put a pin in Mr. Hahn for just a moment. Let's go back to this vaccine outreach. According to Tennessee's now new rules, 
They can't, if, a, if the health department wants to issue any information about vaccines, staff are instructed to strip their logo off the documents. The health department is going to stop all COVID-19, COVID-19 vaccine events on school property. They will no longer send postcards or other notices reminding teens to get their second dose. Teens will be excluded from the postcards um, so that they're not participating in solicitation of minors. Basically, they're saying, don't protect kids from COVID. Yeah. Make this make sense. Uh, I wish I could. Joy. You have that on your set, on your show. Exactly. Make it make sense. Make exactly. Make sense. I wish I could. So this is so ridiculous. So the fact that she was fired because there is a legal doctrine that says if you're 14 years or older, right. you can get vaccinated without your parents' permission. This is the problem that they had with that. They are so married to this crazy MAGA madman. They are willing to die for him. So the local officials there now have to contend with false information, right. disinformation on social media, political information influence based in nothing but ignorance. And it's creating havoc there. Yeah. They're averaging 460 cases a day there while vaccination rates have stalled. And I just want to say this, and I, I want to talk to the folks at home because there are people in our community, Joy, who yep. are still very uh, frightened about this vaccine. And I want to say to you, if you are in the minority community, if you're a person of color, the fact that the only people who are aligning with your point of view right now are in this MAGA madman mob, please do reconsider your position. Uh-huh. 100%. Don't let them kill you. Right. I, I think at, at this point, I, I, I feel the same way. The people that I have true empathy for are the people in black and brown communities yep. and indigenous communities who are, are literally because they're being led in states by people who are part of the cult. And it is a death cult because yeah. they are willing to die and they seem to actually want to get COVID and they want to spread COVID yeah. and they want the right to spread COVID. Please, Black folks, brown yeah. folks, people of color, don't let don't them kill fool. you. Don't, don't let your, them wagon to these fools. And, and let's just show, just to show you the nexus here yeah. in these ideologies. Here are the 19 states with bans on critical race theory where they've been introduced or passed. This is the map. We're going to put that up on screen. We're going to leave that up for a minute. Okay, that's that map. Keep that in your head for a moment. Now let's look at the 30 states that have less than 50% people vaccinated. Look for just a moment. Okay, do you see that how, how they're similar? The overlay. So you're, okay, so let's now move on to this, this high school teacher. Let me let you listen to... Um, this is Matthew Hahn, and he's tenured. He's in Sullivan County, Tennessee, facing termination. And here he is uh, talking about Donald Trump. Take a listen. We elected someone who spoke like this to the highest office in the land. And now we're upset that an African-American author is quoting that president that's not a quote it's, it's kind of a double standard so he's talking he's talking about um the the the, the ta-nehisi coats are yeah. a piece the first white president i taught I, I assigned that to my students yeah to my white students at syracuse it didn't break them yeah Please make it make sense. What he was upset about is that Ta-Nehisi actually quoted something that Steve Bannon and yeah. Trump said, and it was quoted in there, and they didn't like it. Please right. explain. I mean, it's kind of insulting, so insulting that Ta-Nehisi Coates is even mentioned with these people, right? Yeah. Somebody, you know, who said, just because you believe it's fact, don't make it a fact. Correct. <laughs> you know? Correct. Uh, it, yeah, it's really unfortunate, Joy. I mean, but I think the bigger case here, because we could easily get caught up in this one teacher, which, you know, as ridiculous as it is, but this is a fight with the uh, school board. Yeah. And and so a lot of conservatives who want to run for office, they use local school boards as their launching pad. And there's yep. actually data behind this that um, people who are elected to school boards are typically white, 
wealthier. They're, you know, almost carpetbaggers who insert themselves in this and then they get to the state legislature and then they obliterate voting rights. And so when we have something like this, look, I don't have to tell your viewers, they already know how ridiculous the argument is to make. But I think the bigger strategy point is how do you stop this from happening uh, at the school board level? Because there has to be policy uh, to prevent this kind of thing. And that is the key. If they can take away our history and they can rewrite the narrative, then they take away the ability to to, to speak a truthful uh, story about this country and they don't I, I sometimes wonder is it that they don't know or that they don't want everybody else to know right. and I really do think they know they know what they've done but they don't want other people to know and it's very strategic the way that they have streamlined a new narrative there's a case uh, in Connecticut where they um, falsely uh, say that you know the enslaved people were like workers in Alabama yeah. there are textbooks that yeah. say the slavery was the happiest time uh, you know in the country mm-hmm. so these are the things that they're indoctrinating these kids with and you and I both both got two educations. We got what the school taught us, and then we got what we were taught at home, right. uh, which, you know, informed our worldview in a much more, I'd say, comprehensive way yeah. than what our counterparts had. Well, the, the irony is they're proving Ta-Nehisi Coates' right, uh, piece right, yeah. because what he said is that he, they, you know, he sort of empowered white Americans to say that we're going to use, like, the power of our whiteness right. to obliterate the existence of the first black president, and now they're trying to obliterate the history of this country that has to do with us. They're kind of proving his point, yeah. you know, and they're also driving a lot of teachers out of the business. People are saying they're quitting. They're under so much pressure and they're saying openly there was a, a piece, I think it was in the National Review saying run for school board, yeah. take over the schools. We get the schools and we get the exactly. culture back. But uh, the t- ridiculousness of how the leading one of the leading intellectuals in this country, his name is even in this fight how? with half-witted, low intellectually, <laughs> like without any, any intellectual curiosity on a school board. They so. need to read some Ta-Nehisi yeah. They might be smart. Uh, <laughs> Tiffany Cross, uh, thank you very much. Everybody should watch the Cross Connect. Every weekend, uh, you got to watch it, uh, 10 a.m. <laughs> to noon, uh, every weekend on MSNBC. But a quick note before we go to break, MSNBC is celebrating its 25th anniversary this week, and MSNBC Daily is featuring 25 days of essays on important topics from MSNBC authors, hosts, and correspondents. And today you can read my thoughts on how our history informs our president. Present. You can read it now at msnbc.com slash the next <clears throat> 25. Sorry. I'm still ahead. Choke myself up. Abortion rights groups are fighting back against a new Texas law. But get this, you just can't make this stuff up. It deputizes citizens as abortion bounty hunters. Alexis McGill Johnson, president of Planned Parenthood, joins us next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. The right has made it their mission to do everything they can to take away a woman's right to choose. And now they've reached a new low in Texas. The state's new law not only bans abortions after six weeks, before most women even know that they're pregnant, but it effectively deputizes private citizens to become uh, bounty hunters. Instead of relying on the government to enforce the ban, which right now, at least for now, is unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade, it allows any old body to sue abortion providers and anyone who helps a woman obtain an abortion with a bounty of $10,000 if they're successful. As Jennifer Rubin points out, 
the party that's supposedly faithful to the Constitution and to law and order, is instead taking refuge in Kafkaesque rulemaking that empowers individuals and state authorities to harass, intimidate, and confuse Americans. Planned Parenthood and other groups are now suing to block this law, arguing that it will create absolute chaos in Texas and irreparably harm Texans in need of abortion services. I'm joined now by Alexis McGill Johnson, president and CEO of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Uh, I, uh, thank you for being on, um, Ms. McGill Johnson. I lost my ability. I thought I'd lost my ability to be surprised. I thought it was gone. And then this happened. Your and, thoughts and on this law? I mean, the, the cruelty is the point here, Joy. And I think you said it so plainly, right? I mean, this is a state that supposed, supposedly loves defending the Constitution, right? Loves pro protecting rights. And yet it's a state where they don't even love thy neighbor, right? They're talking about sue thy neighbor. They're talking about pitting family members against family members, friends against friends, and encouraging anyone in literally any state who does not believe in abortion or you know, uh, just needs $10,000 to go after anyone who is supporting someone who is getting access to abortion. That could be an abortion provider. It could be a health center. It could be a fund. It could be a donor. It could also be an Uber driver. You know, who knows where yeah. the bounds end? be an ex-boyfriend, right? So like the, the extreme, the extremity of this law makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, let me just read a little bit from the, this is from the Planned Parenthood lawsuit, and, and this is called SB8 is the name of the law. It will force abortion providers and others who are sued to spend massive amounts of time and money to defend themselves in lawsuits across the state in which the deck is heavily stacked against them. The burdens of this cruel law will fall most heavily on black, Latinx, and uh, indigenous patients who, because of systemic racism, already encounter substantial barriers to obtaining health care. But you just made a really important point, because it's not just the health care providers. It's the Uber driver or Lyft driver who drives a woman to the health care center. It's having neighbors spying on women who, hey, wasn't Jessica pregnant last week? She's not pregnant now. I think I might turn her in and get myself $10,000. Hey, you know, let me spy on my in-law. You know, she was pregnant. How pregnant was she actually? You're, it, it's, we like to throw around Handmaid's Tale as a sort of, you know, sort of reference point for what the Republican Party has deteriorated into. But now they've decided, hold my beer. We're just going to go ahead and do it. People informing on people. What are we, the Soviet Union in the 80s? I, I, I'm sorry. Keep talking because I'm just going to keep yelling. <laughs> no, I mean, it does. It feels so dystopian already, right? I mean, and we know, look, 85% of uh, patients at Planned Parenthood health centers come in after six weeks to get access to abortion, right? And that's normal, right? Because you know, six weeks is fairly, very early uh, in a in a pregnancy. And so by most people don't even know they are pregnant before six weeks. And so now you are creating a universe where anybody can uh, be incentivized with a perverse incentive to come in and to actually say, you know, um, I'm going to figure out what happened to, you know, Becky's uh, pregnancy and did she terminate it or not? And then go seek information in order to get this bounty. The Texas state doesn't want to enforce the law. I think that's what's so important here, right? That they, they've decided that rather than enforce the law themselves, they are going to conscript everyday Americans to come yeah. in and, uh, and judges to, uh, to basically uh, drive this strategy for them, right? And to engage in their rigged proceedings. It makes no and, sense, really. And isn't, I mean, if, you, if someone had a miscarriage, for instance, and went into the hospital for a miscarriage, in theory, if they took a lift because they were in pain and bleeding, everyone involved in taking this, you know, if, they, if somebody accused them or maybe the lift driver looked back and thought, hey, I wonder if this person 
had an abortion. I mean, it, it literally turns citizens into spies uh, on each other. Uh, let, let me ask you about Planned Parenthood's long-term strategy. Uh, there was a, a member of Congress who claims he went to high school with Amy Coney Barrett and knows for sure that she's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. As Planned Parenthood began to plan for a world in which Roe is gone, because it does appear that this 6-3 right-wing, far-right-wing court is going to kill it, they're going to get rid of it. What is the plan? You know, look, we are going to fight as hard as we can with all of our movement partners and our and with all of our state partners to make sure that we are, you know, that we have a provider response. You know, we know in many states, Roe is already, you know, ineffectually gone. You know, we know that uh, they've they've continued with the number of restrictions that we've seen just this year, over 600 to strip away access, uh, you know, put in these waiting periods, continue to shame and stigmatize people who are providing abortion, the patients themselves. So, We've seen it during COVID. We know what 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 the world looks like without Roe. What's dangerous about this particular uh, case is that if we are not able to block uh, SB8 in Texas, if we are not able to block what should be a, a regular unconstitutional ban, every six-week ban has, has been blocked, um, it means that 26 states are poised to follow uh, in a copycat manner this same strategy. So that is that's why we felt it was so important with our partners at Center for Reproductive Rights and the ACLU and the yeah. Loring Project and Whole Women's Health to come in and say, we have got to stop this here in Texas and make sure this does not flourish throughout the country while we also fight that provider response and that movement response and that mobilization response around uh, around what will happen, you know, what we hope does not happen in Mississippi, yeah. but what we need to prepare for. Or, or federally, if, if Republicans get their hands on the Senate and the House again, they could pass a federal one. And then we're back in, the, you know, 1850, they did have a fugitive slave back where you could make yourself a little money if you could catch somebody who'd run away from enslavement, get yourself a little chunk of change that way, too. This country's had a lot of weird history, and it, it ain't over yet. Alexis McGill Johnson, thank you very much, and good luck. Godspeed. Still ahead. If you thought that Trump's big lie originated with Orange Jim Jones himself, think again. The true origin story is next, and it's anti-hero is tonight's absolute worst. We'll be right back. a lot about the big lie that fueled the January 6th insurrection and the extraordinary lengths that Republicans are willing to go to to promote and defend it. Well, now we're learning that the big lie was actually hatched on election night, even before the results were in. And like most bad ideas, it began with Rudy Giuliani. That's according to the new book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald Trump's Catastrophic Final Year by Washington Post reporters Carol Lennick and Philip Rucker. They write that on the evening of November 3rd, as members of the Trump campaign awaited the election results, Giuliani started to cause a commotion. He was telling other guests that he had come up with a strategy for Trump. And unsurprisingly, some people thought Giuliani may have been drinking too much. When he finally spoke to campaign staff, the New York mayor turned Trump lawyer told them to, quote, just say we won. You heard that correctly. Giuliani's grand plan was to just say Trump won, state after state, based on nothing. At the time, even Trump's top staff thought his argument was both incoherent and irresponsible. We now know, however, that Trump took Giuliani's advice, which eventually cost Rudy his, his law license. And the big lie continues to poison our politics to this very day. As we've seen, Trump and his allies are so invested in it, they're now trying to portray the Capitol siege as an act of patriotism. And most disturbing of all, they're trying to exploit the death of one particular insurrectionist, one Ashley Babbitt, for political purposes, turning her into a martyr for a supposedly righteous cause. 
And as ridiculous as that idea is, Rudy Giuliani took that phony narrative to a whole new level yesterday, baselessly claiming that Babbitt's shooting was part of a conspiratorial plot involving the Capitol Police. This was a completely phony uh, operation here. They tried to they tried to take uh, this this uh, unfortunate trespass, which shouldn't have been done, and make it into an insurrection. Well, first of all, this is the only insurrection in which a shot wasn't fired. Uh, the only shot fired is the one shot by the police officer at an at an unarmed woman, which they don't want to talk about. So uh, there is a whole plot behind this, and I'm not sure I understand all of it. Okay, maybe he's drinking again, because. That's not just incoherent, it's illogical. There's about as much evidence of a plot to kill this one particular insurrectionist as there is that in China flew in bamboo fiber ballots and swapped them for millions of Trump votes and then fed the real Trump votes to chickens. What actually happened on January 6th is well documented. It's on tape. As the New York Times showed in its recent video investigation, Babbitt was part of the violent mob trying to force their way into the House chamber at the time that lawmakers were literally fleeing for their lives. Now, I should warn you, what happened next is very graphic and disturbing. Police had their guns drawn, but Babbitt ignored their warnings. She attempted to climb through the broken window into the speaker's lobby. And that's when an officer opened fire, firing a single shot. In doing so, that officer stopped the mob, who would have inevitably followed Babbitt. He very likely prevented them from reaching the members of Congress that he has sworn to protect. That is the job of law enforcement, literally. And as the video clearly shows, that officer did what was necessary under difficult and unpredictable circumstances. So Giuliani's claim that the shooting was somehow orchestrated is, frankly, it's unhinged. If anything, Babbitt was actually a victim of the big lie that Giuliani helped create. And that's what makes him tonight's absolute worst. But it's also ironic that Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, of all people, would side with a capital insurrectionist over law enforcement. And that coming up next. Rudy Giuliani dined out for years on the moniker of America's mayor. But talk to any black or brown New Yorker and they'll tell you a very different story. During his two terms in office, Giuliani gave the New York Police Department carte blanche to run roughshod in the city's communities of color with zero accountability. It all started in 1992 when he joined 10,000 rioters, nearly all white, off-duty NYPD officers who were participating in a Patrolman's Benevolent Association demonstration against then-Mayor David Dinkins' call for a Civilian Complaint Review Board. Candidate Giuliani joined those officers, some of whom chanted the N-word, cursing the city's first black mayor through a bullhorn. In 1999, Mayor Giuliani ardently defended the police department after Amadou Diallo, an unarmed black immigrant who worked as a vendor, was shot 41 times as he reached for his ID. The police officers involved in the shooting were acquitted of the crime. A few weeks later, Patrick Dorismond, an unarmed security guard from Brooklyn, was waiting for a taxi outside a nightclub when undercover detectives approached him and sought to buy drugs. He said he didn't sell drugs. The cops insisted. Dorismond shoved one away and the officer shot him in the chest. He bled to death moments later. Amid furious protests, Giuliani rushed to the officer's defense by releasing Dorismond's sealed juvenile records, which had nothing to do with the incident. Why? Because he felt he had a duty to defend the police. I am giving you facts that you resist printing that tend to suggest that the police officers may have been justified. Reverend Al Sharpton pushed back at Giuliani at the time, saying he was hiding the facts. 
they decided to discount contrary evidence. A few days later, Giuliani told reporters that he had no regrets about what he did. Joining me now, Reverend Al Sharpton, National Action Network president and host of Politics Nation on MSNBC, and Michael Daly, special correspondent for The Daily Beast. Thank you both for being here. And Rev, I was, I'm so glad you were available to talk. I know you're in Philadelphia uh, where the president was speaking, but I just had to get your take on Rudy Giuliani suddenly deciding that he's against the police when it comes to Capitol Police officers saving the lives of members of Congress. When you know his history, I lived in New York in his era, that he, he there was never a police shooting, particularly of somebody black, that he didn't support. What do you make of his change Absol of mind? Absolutely. I think that this is the uh, among the most despicable things that I've seen him do. Uh, because because you uh, outlined two cases that were celebrated cases while he was mayor. Don't forget in the Diallo shooting that you referred to, shot at 41 times, that this young man was going in his home, sticking the key in his, his door in the foyer of his building and was unarmed. Uh, uh, Giuliani's talking about somebody unarmed and Giuliani defended him. There was this protest we had for 11 days Hundreds of people go and lay down in front of one police plaza, including the former mayor, Dave Dinkins, and all of us were arrested on a daily basis. He refused to even meet with the black officials to discuss the case, including the sitting state controller at the time, H. Carl McCall. So all of a sudden he discovers uh, law enforcement shooting unarmed people. It is clearly for him to try and in some way uh, get around this insurrection, uh, get around this attempted coup d'etat, and to misuse uh, the death of this woman to try and in some way castigate uh, those officers and not deal with the fact that they, in fact, were dealing with an insurrection to stop the legitimate certification of the vote of the American people. And it's certainly something that is totally contrary to his record as the mayor of New York and the rest of his life. He's always said, don't question police, even when they kill unarmed people. I mean, Michael Daly, you, you've covered uh, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, it, it was so bad that there were people who felt that he was so much more in favor of police that he neglected the fire department. Did, they didn't get the good radios before 9-11. He was just he was all in for whatever police did. The Abner Louima case. We could go on and on. What do you think of what do you think of seeing him now suddenly turn on the police because he's so for Trump? I mean, if you look at the Dorsman case, he didn't, you know. He said the juvenile record that was Dorsman punched and was 11 years old and he punched a kid in a fight over a quarter. So he tried to make that into a crime. He said, this is he's no altar boy. Well, guess what? He was an altar boy, literally. Yeah, he was. And, he, and he was buried out of the church where he was an altar boy. And so his reflex was not just support the cops. It was slime the person who was murdered. And here you have a situation where he's elevating her. And I'm not saying that she deserves to be anything other than that. But I mean, the lesson here is Rudy Giuliani was never pro-police. He was pro-Rudy Giuliani. And I think he's not even a white supremacist. He's a Rudy supremacist in the hmm. same way I think was a Trump supremacist. And with both of them, I mean, they talk about the cops and they like this and this when it gets down to it. Yet all these police officers savagely assaulted and they act like it didn't happen. So what that means is that neither one of them was ever actually pro-police. Neither yeah. one of them was actually in support of law and order. 
which means it was always just about themselves. Surprise, surprise. I think, I think that's so true. And Rev, you, you know, you know, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani very well. I, I mean, that seems just absolutely inalterably true. These men, you know, we were on the side of police when it was convenient. They really don't care about them or anybody else. Right. I mean, right. It's only about them. It's only about them. And I, I think that what people need to understand uh, around the uh, nation that watch you is that the Darisman case, the Luima case, as well as the case of Diallo, they were not in the middle of a violent situation, less known an insurrection. They were people that were shot and killed unarmed when there yep. was no incident that they the police were responding to. They were responding to an insurrection at the Capitol. I'm not saying this young lady should die. I'm not at all castigating this young lady. But we are talking about a police reaction to an insurrection where there was clear and present danger to members of Congress and members of the Senate and the vice president of the United States, by the way, which was their uh, vice president. With Doris Mondialo and uh, uh, Luima, there was no violent incident. They were responding to nothing and yeah. their own imagination. And Rudy Giuliani defended those police. Well, and Michael Daly, they were also responding to the fact that Rudy Giuliani had this, uh, you know, plainclothes police force that was running roughshod throughout New York, hunting for drug related crimes. Right. I mean, this was something Rudy Giuliani wanted done. Yeah, and it's also, if you look at poor Patrick Dorsman, he's 25 years old, right? He's worked all week. He's tired. He, does, he wants to take a cab home, right? He wasn't waiting for a cab. He was trying to get a cab. He's black, and one yellow cab after another goes past him. Right? So then after that happens, some guy comes up and says, uh, you want some drugs? You want, to, you, know, you want to sell me some drugs? So he says, oh, he's coming up to me because I'm black. First, I can't get a cab because I'm black, and this guy's coming up to me because I'm black. So he gets a little cranky. And all he did is say a couple of words. And the next thing you know, the guy's partner shoots and kills him. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, a total outrage. It is. And, it, and, and last word to you, uh, Rev. What do you make of the people who tell black folks who were get killed by police, well, if you just complied? That now, in this case, this woman was not complying. She was defying an officer you know, and, and committing an insurrection. But they're saying she's supposed to be a martyr. I think that they are trying to make uh, a model of a cause that didn't exist. Let us remember, they were in the middle of an insurrection. That's Whether right. the uh, lady should have been killed or not is a total different subject. They were in the middle of an insurrection. That's right. And the officers had a duty to protect and, the people. And they want to out this officer's identity, which would put that officer in jeopardy. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, Michael Daly, thank you. That is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.